recognize, real gon' recognize, real gon' recognize, real, real phony gon' recognize, still, still recognize with. Like we always do with this time, I go for mine, I get to shine. Now throw your hands up in the sky, I go for mine, I get to shine. Now throw your hands up in the sky. Who is who? But uh, my name is Pudgy Miller. Um, 
part of the Frederick Douglass Foundation. I once sat on the board, the president of the Love and Father Society, and a nonprofit called I Love Being a Black Father. I'm Ricardo Du. Uh, I'm retired from Firestone. I'm a member of uh, Samuel Grove Church. And uh, I'm just, I guess I'm the ordinary person here, so I'm just, <laughs> just, the, just the one to be, keep it grounded. <laughs> Uh, I'm Dr. Joel McDermott. I'm a director of research for American Vision, which is a, a conservative Christian 501c3. Uh, we do a lot of research on America's Christian history, uh, biblical law, eschatology, and a broad range of things. Go ahead. That's it. <laughs> for now. Uh, well, given our call to pastor today, first and foremost, God, of course, you know, who's the head of all our lives. My name is Tracy Farmer. Um, I don't claim to have a title, but I am an activist, uh, and when I say activist, I mean for the community, anything that's positive and that can keep us grounded. I do uh, am part of a nonprofit called Buzz Foundation, it is building and understanding for our diverse students. It is an after-school program currently at Toys Not Middle School, um, specifically geared towards um, at-risk youth. And uh, I belong to Mary Road Missionary Baptist Church in Lucommon, North Carolina, on the pastor Robert Whitney. Name of M.K. Smith. The M.K. stands for Modern Keep. I am a local pastor here in Wilson. The church that I serve is Christ Temple of Praise, uh, which is located in Green and Jackson Street. I've uh, been married for 25 years and have two uh, soon to be adult daughters, and just happy to be here. Uh, I'm Tom Curran. I'm retired. Uh, I had titles in my life, but uh, 25 years in the Army, retired, and then 22 years in private life. And I'm here in Wilson because my wife brought me here. Uh, I've been here for the last six years. She's been here for about eight. And um, I am involved in a community, but today I'm not representing any entity at all. Um, I am very, very happy to see this kind of, of forum and this kind of open and honest discussion. This is really great. Forward to a robust but civil discussion. We are Christian brothers and sisters here. Um, this will not be timed, however, I will ask you to keep your comments brief and to the point um, in the interest of time. And um, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, since since this is a world, we're, we're calling this a worldview, a Christian, uh, worldview uh, conference that we're kind of having here this weekend. What, what is your idea of worldview? And it's interactive. I don't want to direct it any one person. My uh, opinion of worldview is simply how we, as a community and as a world, as a nation, come together and view our ideas, thoughts, and opinions on uh, different topics within our society, our community, and our nation. Uh, a worldview is the sum total of your beliefs and presuppositions about society. Uh, and some of those will be conscious, some of them may not be conscious. Uh, even in areas where you haven't thought your worldview through, you will be making assumptions about society, about the Christian life, about how God's word applies to every area of life. And uh, for some people who haven't thought that through, uh, it, there may be some inconsistencies there, uh, but uh, there is no neutrality on these issues. You, you will be making an assumption across the board, uh, whether you've thought them through or not. Well, I I believe that a worldview is an opportunity for people to literally look at the world, um, to consider everything that that world uh, encompasses, not just our local community, but how our local community fits in that large puzzle of everything in, on earth. 
um, all of the views of all the religions, of all the political affiliations, of all of the social networks, of everything that happens, and to get an appreciation uh, and at least an understanding, even if you don't in it, are in agreement with everything, at least an understanding of what those things are. Um, one of the reasons I'm really happy and was excited about the idea of a worldview is I've lived in a lot of different countries. My youngest right now has been living in China for the last five years. Um, and it is important for us to understand how the rest of the world operates because it directly affects how we live and our futures. How is a Christian worldview uh, distinctly different from other worldviews? There seems to be a distinction between understanding what what other how other people view things, which is important for understanding, versus a a personal worldview, which is really the um, the way in which our convictions are formed. As, as Dr. knows, out of presuppositions, out of convictions we find in the scripture or any other place that we find them. And so there's really, to me, there's two distinct things there. On the one hand. Every decision I make, every action I take, every position I hold is driven by my Christian worldview, okay? Which I hope would be completely rooted in the Scripture, okay? And that would be the goal. That every world, every position I have on every issue, I would have some kind of biblical principle or biblical passage for it. And then when I examine the perspectives of others, when I look at what China believes about a one-child policy, or when I look at what another uh, country's third world leader may may or may not be a dictator, and whether we should praise him or not, or her for that matter. That's got to be evaluated in light of my Christian worldview. So, so for for me, as I look at a Christian worldview, it, that becomes the, in, in one sense, it's, it's the filter through which I see everything. And not just in establishing my own convictions, but in evaluating the convictions of others. And, and it's been, it just just to have a little fun, I think that's part of where we run into a big issue in our culture, is that when, just that phrase, when I say evaluate the worldview of others, there's a lot of folks who would say, well, you, you don't have any right to do that. But biblically, I do. I do have a, a reason to question whether, uh, for example, a China one-child policy is biblical, is right, is acceptable, is a human rights issue. And that's driven by a, a Christian perspective on family and on life. And so that I can look at that through my worldview and say, I understand why they do it, but I find it wrong and offensive. So a, for me, a Christian worldview is filtered through which I see everything. And it's got to be rooted in scripture. And I would say you not only have a right to question those, but you have a duty. Yeah, it's mandated duty as a Christian. I believe it, yeah. yeah. It's not optional. Yeah. She she said something a while ago that was interesting to me, and that was that the idea of a worldview being something that is at least partially formed by a community. It's a social thing. And uh, I think that is one aspect of it many times. Uh, whether that society, if you will, is the family or the church or your larger community or the civil state, whatever, um, um, you have a balance between uh, what you glean from those and how those form you, in many cases, without you even knowing. Mm -hmm. uh, we're raised in a culture, and a lot of times we don't even question things. Uh, and we should. 
And that's where your perspective comes in, that a biblical worldview, um, Christian worldview to me in itself is even a little bit weak. Mm -hmm. Biblical worldview, that is, we can disagree with this, with each other on how to interpret this, we can have those discussions, but it has to start there, and it has to come out of that. And I'm pointing at your Bible because I forgot to bring it. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, I think it's important to identify what belief is and what faith is versus what opinion is. Uh, when you talk about a world view, you know we all can view things certain ways, but when it comes to our faith, our Christianity, our belief, the ground foundation of our belief, you know that's the way that we shall go. That's the way that we're going to do. You know that's how we're going to operate. And I think it's very important to to understand what your faith is versus what your views are on other things. Some things you have to be acceptable to whether you like them or not outside of your faith because it's a human aspect of things. It's an understanding of the way other people operate. But you also have to, you know, you gotta, you gotta slow your tracks and you gotta know that that's not for you. And also at times, if you believe in Christianity, whether the world sees it positive or negative, you have to view that as wrong because it goes against what you believe not just your view. So you have to separate, so you figure it, it needs to be separated, your beliefs and your views will have to be separated, or is it all just just one thing? I mean, you know, you, you have your beliefs, and you're grounded, and you're rooted to your beliefs. But what you view and how things are around you and in the world is totally different than what your, what your roots are. So is that a separation between your beliefs and your views, or is it all yeah, intertwined into in, into one? I think it's two different things. Yeah. And that's the way it should be viewed. I mean, that's the way it should be looked at or accepted. Well, I try to let I try to let my I want to I want to let the biblical text. I want to let my biblical views evaluate anything else. So the way I grew up, I grew up in a small town. Um, Fairly racially diverse, a lot of racial division. I grew up in the most racially divided part of the United States. A lot of people think it's the South. It's not. It's Southern Illinois. Okay? If there's a professor from Old Miss that wrote a book called Sundown Towns. Back in the old days, you blow the whistle. If you're not white skinned, you gotta leave town, right? He found two in Mississippi. He found four hundred in Southern Illinois. Okay? It's the most racially diverse place or racially uh, fighting, infighting. Terrible. It's horrible. Town I lived in was like that. And yet, my and my grandfather was a racist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pitiful. That both my grandfathers were. My father caught some of that. And so I grew up in this household and in this environment that was very racially antagonistic. And that had to be evaluated in a lot of scripture. To say, that doesn't match scripture. Jesus says that I'm gonna create one new man. Okay, that it's not it's not white, black, but it's if are you a follower of Christ or not? If you follow Christ, you're my brother, no matter what you cut the scale of your skin is. So my my point is the view that I would have had from my environment would have been that whites and blacks have nothing to do with each other. That is evaluating life scripture, which says that's satanic, it's demonic, it's of the that's of the enemy. So I have to reject that. Even though it's a view that my culture would have said that's that's correct and that's true, so I do think that that they certainly can start off separate 
we don't grow up in a household that honors the scripture and everything is built built on the scripture. And none of us do that perfectly. Right. So we always have to then take and, as I see it, take these other outside views and evaluate those in light of scripture. And what doesn't match up to scripture, we throw out. We don't care how historic it's been in our family or our tradition or among our people group or anything else. We toss it out and we say, I'm with the scripture. That's, that's where I stand. I can do the loving. That's how I would, that's how I would say it. Yeah. The one, the one point that, that I think I'd like to get something clarified on is I understand the values and I understand the worldview and I understand the way we are raised. I mean, that's really the term that we use. Um, you know, some, another emotional term for that would be indoctrinated. You know, a lot of people don't like that word. But the fact is, is if you were raised, I was raised as a Catholic. I mean, and the reason I was raised as a Catholic was because I came from an Italian family with an Irish family two very strong Catholic backgrounds, and I was, it was assumed that I would be a Catholic. Um, and I, I never questioned that. You know, you like questioning your parents. We don't do that, right? But the concern I have when we get to that, that idea of value is I completely agree that the value that we have personally and what we hold as our belief is very important, whether it's from the, scripture, the scriptures or whether it's from any other part of our upbringing. But what concerns me is when we look at something else, and although we don't agree with it, we find it wrong. Because I think what we lose is the fact that someone who believes other has that same value and belief to that point. And for us to classify it as wrong rather than unacceptable to us as an individual, unacceptable to us as our upbringing, or um, how we were raised, or what we personally believe. I think that's where the frictions occur in life. I think that that's where the, the, the conflicts happen. Um, to your point, the difference, uh, I'm very in Philadelphia, downtown, uh, in, in Erie called Germantown. Uh, but the, the majority of the of the, uh, the segregation that happened in my town was not colored. It was Irish and Italian. And I was raised in a household, if you think about it, with today's issues around being an American or being illegal or anything else. I had to live with my grandmother, who came from Italy, uh, because my father was very ill. Long story short, in her home, you spoke only Italian. You spoke no English. It was, it was forbidden. And my, mother, my grandmother was a very good Catholic, but she would you know, not spare the rod if you missed that point. <laughs> Outside the house, you spoke only English, and God forbid that you got those two confused. Because in her home, it was her culture. But she understood that she lived in another culture, and that she, had to, that she and her children and everyone else had to embrace that. And I think that that was one of the finest uh, hours for me to be able to get a sense of it's okay for people to be different. Mm -hmm. It really is okay for them to be different. As long as they don't push their view on me and I don't push my view on them, if they want to have an open and honest discussion, then it makes it worthwhile. Now, would you, would you see a distinction between, because I agree with you, and I would never say your grandmother was wrong. Let's say she's a, you know, First of all, she'd wear me out. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, they didn't mind if it was their kids or the neighbor's kids. Who had that now? If we were in the house, you'd curse you out. Right. 
I'm wondering if, you, if we draw a distinction between those kinds of matters, which would be which would, I would I would regard as a a matter of indifference in terms of morality. Okay, whether my whether my wife's father spoke Spanish in the home all the time or, or Spanish and English was, was is a matter of indifference. And and the evaluation I, that I would make on that wouldn't be a moral one. Because I wouldn't make a I wouldn't pass a moral judgment to say. Um, in, in my wife's case, her father forbid speaking Spanish at home because he wanted to work on removing his accent. Mm -hmm. So he forbid it. Now I wouldn't make a moral judgment say that he was a bad man for that. I would say he didn't help his daughter learn Spanish. It would have been more beneficial to her to speak Spanish. But it's not a moral matter. It was just a matter of indifference. But when, when we talk about, for me, when I talk about something being wrong, I want to make sure that I'm talking about a, a moral issue. Mm -hmm. So that if, if I'm going to assess, and again, I, I, I you mentioned your, your son was in China, and I've got friends there, and going, so for your daughter, excuse me. Um, so I just I pull up their, their one child policy. That, that's wrong. That's immoral. You, you realize that that's no longer uh, the, the. Well, it's just an example. I'm just pulling no, an I'm saying example. That, that the one child policy is no longer by law required. The only stipulation now is that if the person can afford more than one child. Yes. Yes, I'm aware of that, and and, and, I, and I would find that I would find that immoral and reprehensible to say to anybody, <laughs> you can't have more than one child as you can afford it. So, so my point my point to say is, as far as assessing morality, I want to distinguish between matters of indifference, what what somebody dresses, how they wear, music they listen to, what they speak in their home, stuff like that, mm -hmm. versus something that is clearly a a biblical moral violation. So I want to keep those two things separate, as I, as I would evaluate. That's what I hear too, because if you say it's okay to look at people as other, the irony of what you're saying, but it's wrong to condemn them. If you make that a general principle across the board, you run yourself, I would think, into trouble, because number one, you're saying that it's wrong to say that they're wrong. <laughs> And that's the problem always with the relativistic view is you have to have a moral even debate that. But um, at, at what point and by what standard do you say this is wrong? You don't get to do that. Uh, if you don't have those uh, in society, in families, churches, and state, uh, and if they're not from that book, uh, then then what, where are they from and, and who's sovereign over them? Well, again, understanding and being very respectful of the fact that this is a this is a group of Christians here. I I would tell you that if we were in the Middle East and they were pointing at the Quran, the same views would be and values would be there. And then and 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 then you would be in a, in a discussion that would have to be one of who's right and who's wrong. And and that's not my point. My point is not wrong. My point is you don't have to agree with. But we have to respect the fact that the other people have different views. That's all. Sure. If they're not ours, we don't, and, and we get this from the teachings of Christ, mm -hmm. we have free will. We have the free will to believe what we're going to believe, mm -hmm. act in our lives. And, and, and for those who do some really vile things that are, and I'll use that term, wrong, most of the time it is not because they've used free will in a clear thinking, you know, situation, they have used that free will uh, to to have that act or whatever it is because they are mentally imbalanced, and then 
there's a whole other issue of mental health and everything else that we'd have to address. But well, I, I, I didn't want to make the, the point that it was wrong. I'm not saying this is right and this is wrong, this is right and this is wrong. I'm just saying be accepting. And I think that that is one of Christ's teachings, to be accepting. It is, but not a compromise of faith. And that's why I was making the point of they are, they're, they're different. Our, our beliefs are different than our views. At the end of the day, you can believe in a dog. So you're, you're defining views as, as something that's not a moral issue. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the Lakers, sadly enough. I'm a Laker fan. That's right. a view. <laughs> that's your view and that's your right to have that view. Uh, that may be a moral issue. If you told me to make it to Jesus, I'm going to call you crazy. Please do. That's a very good discussion on that topic. Uh, let me just say real quick that I, I don't know if I'm the only Calvinist on the panel here. So I, I, I would have difference with the free will view and all of that. I believe in total depravity. Man is born a sinner, and those decisions that he makes are not because of unclear thinking. They're, they're uh, made because you're a sinner. Yeah. 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 If there were a Buddha sitting here, they would tell you that um, that the free will was was based on the idea that you didn't need a religious law to tell you whether you were doing something right or wrong, mm -hmm. that your temple, your body would tell you, and if your body cannot distinguish between the two, then you're crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's really, really, really brings us full circle back like to, the, to the issue of the worldview, because as I, well, one of the things I share with people is the way you, you, you assess worldviews is which, which view of the world answers the questions best who are we? Where do we come from? What's going wrong with the world? And how do you fix it? So when I assess Buddhism, I'm going to assess it based on those four questions. How Buddhism answers those questions, and then I'm going to look out to the rest of the world, and I'm going to say, does that match up with what I see? Right. And I'm going to do that with Christianity. I'm going to do it with Islam. I'm going to do it with Hinduism. I'm going to do it with any other worldview, world religion, any other perspective, even a non-religious worldview perspective. If it, the way it answers those four questions is the way I'm going to determine whether or not it has a ring of truth. And as I assess it, the, the Christian answer to those four questions makes the most sense of what I see in the world. Say those questions again, would you please? Who are we? Where did we come from? What's going on with the world? And how do you fix it? Okay. Those are the four that I do. Yeah. I, I would go even beyond that and add to it theology, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation. That's some of what you said. But especially the doctrine of God and who is Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, those questions, let me put it, I don't want to speak over it average person's head, but the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, the dual nature of Christ, right. that addresses the entirety of society, mm -hmm. sure, in every way, shape, and form, family, church, and state. And, and so I would even go back to that point, right? because we, 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 we get on the, we want to talk about practical things all the time, and not talk about theology, that's for the sure. people who want to talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, and all that kind of stuff. But it matters. It, it matters differently. And then when you take that standard and apply it to Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, right. you see some serious inconsistencies that if they were carried out, uh, in my opinion, if they were carried out consistently in society, you would run into anarchy or dictatorship. Well, and the reason, you're right, I wouldn't dispute the, the theological issues. The, way I, the, way, the reason I use those four is because it tells me um, where do we come from is, is a question of supernatural origin versus natural. Mm -hmm. Did we just evolve from a, a glob in the ocean, and, 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 and we're just no, we're no different fundamentally from the dogs and cats running around, and from the from the monkeys in the in the, in the zoo. Fact, we're no different, different okay? Mm -hmm. Versus supernatural, was there a personal God who created us? Who are we? Well, that goes to the question: of Who created us? We're just animals, and animals we expect to act like animals. 
or will be created higher than that with greater expectation. What's gone wrong with the world in a naturalistic view is simply a lack of education and a lack of training. They're retrain people. In a supernaturalistic worldview, particularly a Calvinistic supernatural worldview, it's man's fundamentally flawed because we've sinned. And we're, that's what separates us from God. And that's where our evil behavior comes out of. It's a heart filled with sin. That's what Jesus said. You look deep enough in the heart, you don't find good. You find evil. Okay? And then what do you do to fix it? Again, that, that goes to the question of is it education and training or is it a spiritual transformation that's necessary? Okay? And so like, even like, like with your, your group, Buzz, I guess it's awesome to do that. And I would look at, in my mind, I would be thinking, how do I go about trying to introduce the reality to, to students that there's a spiritual transformation necessary for them to view students, to view people different than them with respect. They've got to have something inside of them change. And, you know what I'm saying? And you've probably seen that in your work. You have kids come do all the classes and then, then they go out and act crazy and you're like, what in the world? <laughs> well, you know, that, that's a really good point. And, uh, one of the bits of work I've been doing in my retirement here in Wilson is working at the the business development center downtown trying to get people to get their own business to start and help yeah. them do that and I've had some experience in myself doing that. Um, one of the things that drew me to that was the unemployment rate. Yeah. And then I started really taking a very close look at the unemployment rate for Wilson and realized that the unemployment rate was not the issue. The unemployable rate is the issue. That's right. You can train them all you want. Yeah. You can educate them all you want. You know, all the courses at the community college on earth to get them to the point where they can make tires at Bridgestone. Mm -hmm. But if they do not have the background, the, 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 the family connection, the parental guidance, mm -hmm. the things that are required to build their moral fiber, they can't pass a drug test, they sure. have a criminal record, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. and then you have an issue where they are unemployable. If we have jobs open in the city, no matter what city it is, and I'm not using Wilson in the derogatory, sure. it's this way everywhere. Yeah. If you don't have, if you have jobs open, you should not have an unemployment rate that is right. that high. That's right. And that's the problem, that's one of the problems that goes right back to it. Then if you take that, and I had the opportunity to do this, when I was working with uh, the uh, uh, Wilson 2020, great group of community leaders, um, city, uh, the city, the county, uh, industry, <laughs> to decide what can we do about this. And they brought a third party in to do a survey. And I was the one who put together all of the agencies that provide um, support to youth and families. You want to take a guess in Wilson how many of those are? Two. Just off the top of your head, just two? How many? Two. Two? Supporting that provide help that 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 are nonprofits, for profits, mm -hmm. yeah. that provide help and support to children and families. That's, that's <laughs> daycare, after school systems, oh, churches. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Okay. Real close, we think, real close to about four hundred. Mm -hmm. Four hundred. Mm -hmm. So then the question that I had in my little analytical mind was, how could we be having a problem that the unemployable, how could we be having a potential problem with gangs mm -hmm. if we have that much support and that much mm -hmm. indoctrination, which sure. is an emotional sure. word, of, of all of these things that should be happening? Where's the distance? Yeah. And that's, that's well, what they're that, trying that, to That's what goes back to, from, from a Christian yeah. perspective, it goes back to, it's a heart issue. 
it's a heart issue. And it's sort of, there, there's certainly some situations where it would manifest itself in mental health things. I get that. Yeah. But I don't want to ever label all of sinful behavior. My sinful behavior. Yesterday, getting mad when I put my motorcycle back together and <laughs> throwing my screwdriver across the room. I don't want to label that as a mental health issue. That was just sin. That's all that was. It was just sin. I don't know. It does work for me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to another topic, uh, real quick. We, that's well, what I was running out. You The one question I would ask is, what is the na- what are the nature of those programs? Obviously, the 400 of them are diverse. Yeah. Yeah. But are they gospel centered? Are they from day one? Are they preaching the gospel to those kids from uh, kindergarten, daycare, all the way up? Well, the, the, the number well, the again, the I'm, I'm sure they're in the process, process now of refining it. So the number I'm going to use now may be a little off, but it was 150 churches. Yeah, wow. And you know, yeah. you know that as I do, that in this community at least, the majority of those would be classified as Christian. Sure, sure. So. I think that that answers the question yeah. now. But the, the, just like in any other program, um, you know, what's the difference between a, a, an after-school program that's very well organized, very well staffed, professionally run, uh, and and gains federal dollars to do that, or state, community, uh, local dollars to do that, and is very effective versus one that's not? That's the issue. Yeah. Well, I would also ask, in, in the number of those people who are actually public schooled on the side, where the gospel is not allowed. Uh, public schools are one of the, the biggest centers of the drugs and the games. Um, so it, it doesn't matter if you're doing this one thing on the side and then for the most of the time uh, growing up in their lives during this other environment, which is not Christian, in fact in many cases it's anti-Christian. That's a, that's a good segue until our next question. Um, does the Bible allow for separation of church and state? Does the Bible outlook, does the biblical outlook allow for separation of church and state? These guys haven't said anything. Yeah. Yeah, I was waiting to jump in. <laughs> does the biblical outlook allow for separation of church and state? It, what is the role of the government in the, and from a biblical perspective? What are its functions? What are its limitations? In terms of the it's a broad question, first of all. It, it is a broad yeah, question. In terms of the separation of church and state, um, I would like to get a definition in terms of what are we separating? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, that's that common phrase that you hear all the time. Exactly. That says, it is, yeah. okay. separation that's a general, you know, your, what are your thoughts on it? In terms of uh, Christianity or in terms of being good citizens, I believe that is our Christian duty um, to be involved in our government and be good citizens. Mm-hmm. That's just a basic answer right there. Mm-hmm. In terms of our morality, as we've been discussing and, and debating this morning or talking this morning, um, that as Christians, we ought to show an example and be, again, good, have good morals for others to see so that they can emulate our lifestyle. And again, that's just loving each other and, and respecting God. Mm-hmm. God. You know what, Pastor? I think when it comes to the government, we're looking at even on our money, where it says in the one in God we trust. You hear it talk about removing God off our money. We talk about God removing this God off the pledge of allegiance. Mm-hmm. Removing God out of the school. So the government feels that um as the Christian belief that we shouldn't force Christ on the school system. We shouldn't force Christ into everyone else's life. He's our belief. He's our source. Uh, for the most part for us, but as a worldview of those that are not quite where we are, then the government said, we can't force your opinion on everyone else. So we want to remove this aspect 
from the nation's view as a, as a total, but it's okay for you to view it as a community, um, even as the uh, after school program. You know, they don't want you to go into the schools in the afternoon speaking, you know, Christ, 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 God, God, God. You can put positive in a child's life, but don't come at it as beating Christ on them. So you want to, when it comes to church and state, I can have my beliefs, my trust in God, but then as the world, as the nation views, as the government views, there's certain aspects that we don't want you to even mention God in. And that's the way uh, a lot of government sees it. So if we want to keep a firm ground on, on our beliefs, no matter what others say, uh, it's up to us to, to, to keep our trust and keep firm stand on that word, or, or do we fall in or for anything? At the same time, um, we can meet other people where they are. We don't have to quote a scripture to them to meet them where they are. We can still come within our belief if, if it's a child or their parent at home because no matter what I'm saying to this person, if they're going at home in that same environment and a, and a parent is anti-anything I say, mm -hmm. then it comes a ping-pong effect. So we back and forth with what the positive we're trying to instill and the negative that the community or their environment is putting into them. So how do we come together? How do we make it work if we don't bring our views together? How do we how can we make it work if we're not meeting the parents? Uh, these type of programs or what have you shouldn't be a, a babysitting issue. They should be where the parent is involved, where the mother's involved, where the father's involved. This is what we're trying to do. What do you think about this? You know, how do you feel about your child's future? So that's just an example of going through the state and the government. So we like this and we need to find a way to <coughs> bring it together, but how do we bring it together when we're constantly being reminded to take God out of here and take God out of there? I think one of the things, uh, and Dr. McGurman is going to be more, far more limited on the, on the founders on this than I am, but I think one of the questions that I want to ask to folks who like to talk about removing these things, does it matter what our founders thought? Okay? So the phrase separation of church and state is not in the Constitution, it's not in any government documents, it's in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to Roger Williams who was concerned about the government interfering with the church. That was William's concern. How do I keep the government out of church? And Jefferson came back and said, what we've created here, is literally we've erected a wall of separation between church and state. The goal of which was to keep the state out of the church. There was an assumption, a presupposition, to use Dr. McGurn's term, of the founders, that who you are as a Christian is going to affect how you govern. You, you, how can you not? How can it not? How can I say I'm a Christian and yet these issues coming before me, I'm going to somehow be able to disconnect being a Christian from evaluating these issues. To hold that position fundamentally misunderstands what it means to be a Christian. It means that you just have your name on a roll somewhere and you check the box. But if you've been transformed by Christ, that everything that comes before you and, and everything you rule on as a judge, everything you assess as a legislator or a city councilman is going to be assessed based on me as a follower of Christ and how I understand how we ought to implement these things. So I think one of the questions I always ask is, what, does it matter what the founders thought? If it doesn't, we don't care what they thought. And I suppose we could just trash the whole deal. I mean, we trash the Constitution and everything else that they, that they established and say, let's start over because it's a different world today. Well, guess what? It's going to be a different world in 100 years. And so we're going to keep redoing it? You, you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. I get the fact we live in a different culture than they lived in the 1780s, 1770s. I understand that. 
I also know it's going to be a different culture in 2150 when we're all long gone. And so the question becomes, do we just throw out what they did and say it doesn't matter and we do our own thing? So I'm not, I'm not for a theocracy. I don't think we live in a theocracy. Okay, I'm not interested in that. But when, when, you, when you fail as a society to determine what your absolute moral values are going to be based on, when you fail to determine what that's going to be, the only thing left is what makes the most people the most happy. Francis Schaeffer said that in 1976, and it's still true. That if you say that the scripture's not going to be it, okay, that's fine. What are we going to replace it with? In our culture, today, we have replaced it with what makes the most people the most happy. Chaos. Okay, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, you, yeah, you said it best. Morals. I, I think that that's something that you know, if you define who is for Christ and who's not for Christ, or who the way they carry themselves, it's morals. It's the lack of morals and it's the lack of respect for people, which uh, Captain Smithson said a minute ago. You know, if we don't learn to respect each other, yeah. we lose. You, the game's over. I don't care what you believe and what you're doing. If we don't learn to communicate, the game's over. You can forget about it. Yeah. These are the things that we must overcome. That's the difference of church and state to me. I find it amazing that, you know, <laughs> we teach the, the, the understanding that we would like to believe the way we want to believe, but we flock towards government and do that. The exact same things that they want us to do that, that spikes God. Mm-hmm. And and I find it amazing that Christians are normally mm-hmm. the ones in this conversation, you know, the ones that know that you know, we call ourselves the truth and the light. If I'm wrong, so I'm wrong. So I find it amazing that we call ourselves the truth and the light, but yet we won't stand on God's understanding with God's morals, but we'll do what the government says that somehow trumps God in our society today. Or we'll use the government to impose whatever really, really fit, whatever makes the most people the most happy. Uh, I agree in large part with what Reverend Smith said. Um, obviously, this is a broad question, um, but I am a theocrat, and I don't think anyone cannot be a theocrat. The question is never, uh, is God ruling society or, mm-hmm. or not? It's, the question is, whose God is ruling society? Mm-hmm. Sure. It's either the God of the Bible or some other God, or it's a humanistic right. replacement for God. So theocracy is inescapable. Um, and when you look at it like that, the concept of a separation between church and state, that is the institution of the church and the institution of the state, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The civil government's job was to punish crime. It is an agency of force. It's an agency of guns. Mm-hmm. The church's job is to preach the gospel and to teach God's laws. It is an agency of persuasion, an agency of uh, discipline within the church. So that's why the two are not. In Old Testament law, the king was not allowed to assert the role of the priest. And you see episodes of that in the Old Testament. It was Uzziah who served the role of the priest. He was immediately stricken by God with leprosy, what the Bible calls leprosy. Likewise, the priests were not allowed to run the role of the king. But the question is, who is the God over both of them at the end of the day? Because the source of law is, the, is your God. And that is the thing we, we have to ask, because when we start as Christians, whether Republicans or Democrats or Socialist, Communist or Libertarian or whatever, a Libertarian would be less inclined to do this, but <laughs> when you start using the government to pass laws to favor yourself or, or whatever you think makes most people most happy, or even by popular vote, sure. if those laws don't line up with what God calls society to do, 
You're instituting a tyranny, and your society is worshiping a false god. I hate to use the term opposing because I'm not opposing that view, but I do want to go back to the history. And my understanding is that the reason that the founding fathers, and especially the Jeffersons, who were the prolific writers at the time, used those kinds of terms was to ensure that this country didn't end up in the same situation it was when it was in England, which was religious persecution. And I believe that the use of the term God was general enough to accept the fact that there was a creator. And at that point, it was who that God was to you. And that the government was not going to intervene and say, we are a Christian nation, we are a Muslim nation, we are a Buddhist nation. It wasn't going to become the persecution state that it was in England, which was one of the major reasons, besides the taxing, that the country declared its independence. It no longer wanted to be held to one standard. Well, what's interesting about that, and I wouldn't argue the point furiously with you, because I don't happen to think that all of the founding fathers were good Baptists. But even faithful followers of Christ. I know, there's plenty of deists in that bunch and a few others. However, what I always find interesting is that on one hand, we hear that they were so opposed to establishing a religion, and yet, was it 9 or 11 of the original 13 colonies had a state church? Well, they actually adopted a state church and said, this is the state church of Virginia, this is the state church of... And you're like, somehow they figured out that they could do that and yet not force everybody to be a part of it. And so, while they didn't adopt one for the nation, which is fine, but that had more to do with their emphasis on states' rights than it did on decentralized central government. And we see that now, even with the very difficult question that the Supreme Court's about to tackle this month. I read the piece in the paper today, very emotional to me, the child whose parents are same-sex, and she wrote the letter to Chief Justice Sotomayor, and the response that she got from her was, really, it's great that somebody would take the time in that level to correspond with sixth graders. But the point in the story that just hit me in the heart, really hit me in the heart, is here's this child. You can imagine this now. Standing on a bridge, and on one side of that bridge, her parents are not married. And on the other side of that bridge, her parents are married. And the confusion that that would cause that child. And one of the teachings in Christianity is that we are equal, that we are to love each other, that we are to respect each other. And when I read that, it reinforced with me that this is not a religious question. Right back to why the Supreme Court can look at it and not look at it as a Christian question or a non-Christian question, but to look at it as a civil union. And what dawned on me was, I would vehemently defend any church's right to tell anyone we are not going to marry you in our ritual, in our church. But not to have that happen if I go down to the courthouse 
to a justice of the peace and apply for a marriage license. That's a civil union. That has nothing to do with religious beliefs of any kind. And restricting that is a form of not being accepted, not being Christian. Well, what, what are the things? And discriminates. Oh. My, my thoughts on this are broader than what I'm about to say, but just to throw into the fray, Jesus did say something about marriage. So I, I would dispute the idea that it's not a religious question. It's fundamentally a religious question when we're talking about marriage. Now, I personally would, would assess uh, an, a designation of a civil union fundamentally different than I do marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So it is at its root a spiritual issue. The coming together of male and female is fundamentally a spiritual issue, according to Ephesians chapter 5 and Jesus in Matthew 19, where he says, from the, God, from the beginning God intended male and female. And so there's, there's, there's never a time in the New Testament where, where the New Testament is ambiguous about homosexual behavior, because that's what we're talking about. So on the, on the one hand, as a, as a pastor who holds to the scripture, I'm going to be very clear that homosexual behavior is sin. Always, everywhere. Don't care how much people love each other. Don't care how much, I don't care what the reason is. The scripture is clear. Just like it's clear that if I go and cheat on my wife, it's sin. Doesn't matter if, if I think I fell in love with somebody else. The New Testament says you're an adulterer. It's a sin. Okay? So the question then becomes, and I do think it's an important one. How do, you, how do you go about dealing with this in a governmental, in a legislative, in a civil sense? How do you go about addressing this issue? I do think it's complex, and it's certainly more than even we're going to be able to discuss in a, in a few minutes here. But I, but I want to get on the table that, the, that for me, the term marriage is a sacred term, and it is a spiritual term. And, and I noticed that as you were sharing, you went back and forth between marriage and civil union. No, no, then you misunderstood me. Okay. Because what I'm trying to say uh, is that a marriage, in my mind, okay, a marriage is a ritual that has a religious connotation. Okay. At this table, it'll be the, 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 okay. the symbols of Christ in the church. Okay. I can tell you I've been to a lot of marriages in my life where there was no Christ in the church, but I was in a church and I was there with reverence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and it was a marriage. Every one of those people came with a document from the government. Right. That's the civil union part that I'm talking about. Yeah. I get what that. I'm saying yeah. is yeah. when we restrict a union, a couple, no matter, and again, I, you know, I can agree with you, I can respect your view of the homosexual side of it, but I'm not talking about that. I am talking about a civil union because one of the things that is most destructive potentially on this law is that it deals with heterosexual couples who are not married. Marriage. Understand that. You have children potentially. You have benefits potentially being removed from heterosexual man and wife directly out of the Bible. They have done the right thing. They are living together. Maybe they're in sin, but you know that's again that's free will. That's you say heterosexual couple, a, a a heterosexual couple, a couple under this law. I mean, you, have you read the, what the full title of the law is? Oh yeah. Okay. You realize that the that law that that Amendment One, in fact, just 
added the civil union side to what already was a law concerning marriage. You could not be married in this state unless you were a man and wife. The law solidified what was already law. No, 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 no. The law just solidified what was already law. The law was already there. There's no need to solidify a law that's already law. It was being challenged. That's why we needed an amendment to solidify the North Carolina. It was only being challenged on the part of civil unions. No one coming and knocking on the door of this church saying, marry me. It was people going down to the city hall to get a marriage license. Maybe the easy way to do this, because I'm a pretty simplistic person, is let's start calling it a civil union license. I don't care what we call it. I think we should back up even further than that and ask the question, should the government even be involved in not at all marriage, period. And I'd say, no, it shouldn't be. The whole idea of a marriage license historically came out of the fact that people were trying to bar interracial marriages. And so you had to go down and apply to the state to prove to them that the marriage you were getting into didn't involve a white man, a black girl, or a black man, a white girl. And I can tell you once again, going back to my upbringing, when my mother and my father met each other, fell in love, both Catholics, both devout Catholics, mass every day, both of them, had every intention of having a lot of children. When my grandmother, who came from, who was Bruce says, came from Italy, and my father's mother, Annie Gallagher, who came from Scotland, they wanted to have a wake rather than a funeral. Absolutely. That's serious. So it's not just about that color. I mean, it goes down to, these are Catholic Christian people who could not accept the cultural differences of their ethnicity, not their race, but Irish and Catholic. I mean, I grew up in my neighborhood being called a a wop and a mick. You know, it was like, no, I thought I was an American. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, the definition of marriage, and we're talking about church and state, and then we kind of moved over to Amendment 1, which is a totally different issue for North Carolina. And if we're speaking on Amendment 1, I can tell you that it was being challenged in North Carolina. The definition of marriage was being challenged in North Carolina, which entailed that we needed an amendment to solidify what was already law for some odd reason. So, you know, that was the invoke of Amendment 1 and why we had, you know, that take place here, transpired North Carolina. Now, if you look at it throughout the world, I agree with Dr. McDermott. I, I don't think that marriage should be constituted by any government whatsoever, point in period. You know, if we want to talk about what's the definition of marriage, how about we just take government out of marriage, yeah. period, all the way? And then all of the problems that surround these, like the tax breaks and all that kind of stuff, they fall away. Mm-hmm. And the visitation rights in the hospital issue, that becomes a private property issue for the privately owned hospital. The owners decide. Uh, I mean, it's so much simpler when you have a society in which the government's not got its nose in this to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and that might have been a solution, but that's not what happened. If you ever find an occasion where the government willingly withdraws itself <laughs> from something, but, where it takes, takes money out of their own pocket for marriage license, but if you ever find a place where the government says, we'll voluntarily step back. Well, that brings up a good issue. He says that is, uh, might be a good solution, but it's not what happened. Well, that's where the, the pulpit comes into play. Why are the pulpits not preaching this stuff across the land so that every Christian, hundreds, thousands of Christians that are going to church every Sunday have this idea, well, you want to put pressure on the government, 
get your hundreds of thousands of Christians involved. It's Start preaching these that. issues. It's not popular. Well, the opposition well, to that is not popular. Oh, yeah, the tithe money starts falling off. Well, yeah. that's, that, that might be popular for some, for some pastors. I'm sure Pastor Fisher can speak on this, but it's not popular. And sometimes, even though I'm, I'm an advocate for uh, heterosexual marriage, but sometimes it creates confusion and problems within your congregation. And that takes a little bit more comfort and time to address. Now, I'm no pastor. Neither am I. I can imagine what it would be like to have to speak on that message and not clarify what it distinctly means before God. But, but I think that that message has to be factually based. And it has to take all the emotional parts of it out. And I didn't want you to misinterpret what I said. I didn't say, I didn't mean to say, if I said good. No, you didn't. I may very well have, but I'm going to be real clear about this because I'm going to take this back to my 25 years of military service. I would never, ever do anything that was detrimental to this government. My, my, as as uh, you know, a draftee and then and then going from enlisted to an officer and retiring after 25 years, I dedicated my life, that part of my life, mm -hmm. to service for the good of everyone we thank and you. to protect the good of everyone and the rights of everyone. So I would never advocate that what we should do is just throw out the entire Constitution. Not that you're, right. you're not advocating that. I understand that. But what I'm saying is, if we could just simply not look at this as a religious issue, we can look at it as a religious issue for ourselves. And I, today, I, I just said to protect and defend. I would defend this church's right, in this building that we're sitting in right now, to tell a person, who, a couple who walked into this place to say, we want to get married, the right to say no. Mm -hmm. We want to get married in your church. We already have a marriage certificate. Well, that's fine. Then you, God love you, you're married, go away. But we are not going to recognize that marriage in this institution. Mm -hmm. You have the right to do that. And I would defend that all day long. What I can't defend is the discriminatory state of that amendment. That it says to people who want to be a civil union, who want to be married under the present government definition of marriage, civil union, no. I, I, I find that... I find that what, what, let's, 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 let's move on. Let's, we, I know we can stay right here all day long. Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what limit would you place on, on marriage? What do you mean? And I'm, not, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic and I'm not trying to be smart. I, I, because I, I, I want to know, I hear that you, don't, you would not want to prohibit um, a, a same-sex couple from, from getting a license and being married by the judge or whatever. I get that. That's, that's fine. What, where would you draw some lines? Would you draw lines at polygamy? Would you draw lines at? Well, I, mean, I mean, if you if you look at it realistically, if you start to draw lines on on that that starts to also restrict some other religious beliefs. Well, I, I understand. I mean, that's why I'm personally, asking. I'm asking the question I mean, about everything I can do to have just one wife. I mean, I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> but my partner, like, but I think that's where I would I would go back to what Dr. McDonald was talking about, which is. If the government got out of it entirely, then the government says nothing about the baptisms we perform in our church. Because that is a, that is a uh, we would call it an ordinance, some would call it a sacrament. It is a religious act. In the Catholic Church, marriage is a sacrament. Yes, it is. Okay? So, so if the government said, we're not going to touch these religious issues, marriage would be one of them I would say stay out of. If they stayed out of it, then there would, this, this issue wouldn't come up at all. Well, well it would in a little way, and, and, and even in that situation, the government has a role in upholding the covenant. 
Marriage is a covenant that has elements of the contract in it. And therefore, when adultery is committed, mm -hmm. the wife has recourse or the husband has recourse to go to the state and have that covenant upheld in a court of law. Mm -hmm. Now, we've totally wasted our divorce law. We've no fault divorce and all that's the normal process law. Community property laws, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the problem with a homosexual, even in that case, with homosexual marriage, whatever you would call it, is that especially between two males, it involves sodomy, which is also specifically singled out in biblical law. You can't consummate that marriage without sodomy, which in biblical law the state has a role in. And that's something we've also done away with over the years through liberal activism is our sodomy laws. change gears just a little bit here um, and talk about um, from a biblical worldview, um, how do you feel like that applies to our areas of education in this country? Um, biblical worldview on education. Well, earlier um, in a comment that I was making about as far as uh, Christ or the Bible in uh, churches, because um, we have our, our Christian schools and they sort of wholeheartedly push Christian education, but in our public view, uh, we are supposed to be mindful of what we say when it comes to Christ in our public schools. Uh, there are concerns from parents and educators about uh, as far as why the pledge, uh, pledge of allegiance is taken out or why we're taking God out of the schools. Um, concerning for just our individual uh, views, we believe that in everything we do, we should put Christ first. So. When if I'm putting Christ first in everything that I do, everything I say, and I'm referencing um, to the Word and what I do, um, then I myself, my belief is that I'm mindful of uh, if I say or act on something, whether it's with the uh, educator or with the parent or with the child, I make sure that I stand on what, well, I try to, we're not, we're, none of us are perfect on what the Scripture says. Uh, Education-wise, uh, we're supposed to be, again be mindful of how we put that out there um, uh, to the youth. You know, the teacher can't stand it in and say, well, uh, you need to make a good way to math. God, what they're not supposed to say, God wants you to do well. Um, they have to come at another standpoint of, you know, making the best education is up to you as a student. It's up to you to apply yourself. It's up to you to be the very best that you can be um, when it comes to uh, Christianity. I, say, I believe as we as a community uh, just remember what we stand on and how how we are to be mindful then we can take that without pushing people so to speak because you want to meet individuals where they are whether it's you, whether it's an adult or where it's a child, whoever you want to meet individuals where they, where they are and sometimes that requires us not to uh, not to swing things at them in such a tough manner. And when I mean swing things at them, I mean how we how we apply the word. I may have to, a parent who didn't even graduate from school, I may can't tell her uh, in an educational manner who or what uh, things about Christ. But there may be another parent who's a pastor or uh, a minister or what have you, or evangelist or whatever they be mm -hmm. in religion, I may can come at them and they understand that this is how, you know, we have to interact with your child. So I think... Uh, when it comes to that, it's a matter of how we approach it and how we meet individuals where they are. I, I guess for me, I had I, I had three quick points for me for education with, with Christian faith, and these are very simplistic. Those will end up there. 
number one, I think in, in our society, you ought to be able to get what you pay for. So I think that if if you're if you're paying property taxes to support education, I think you ought to have the right to send your child to school wherever you want to send them to school with, with those property taxes. Okay, I don't think I should have to pay property taxes and then pay again to send my child somewhere else. Okay, and in that way, the best schools are going to get the most students in, in the system. I, I'm, I'm all about that. Second thing, I think. Um, I think our children are woefully uh, undereducated when they when they are completely unacquainted with the Bible as literature. I'm just saying as literature. I don't care if they're reading stories from the Quran. I don't care if they're reading stories from Hindu religions and Buddhist religions. I don't care. We just need to do a better job of of creating our children, an awareness of our children of biblical stories. I heard Mark Barnett or Burnett the other night talking about the Bible miniseries, and one of the things he said was American children are just ignorant of basic Bible stories. And of course, we're ignorant of stories of other religions too. But I think that that's a problem. I don't think you, I don't think you teach that without making it. Um, you have to embrace it. The third thing I would say, I just wish people would lighten up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I hear again about another parent being mad because some kids prayed a prayer at a graduation, mm-hmm. look, if a, if a kid got up to graduate and he gave his speech and he said, "My Buddhist faith or my Islam faith or whatever is what helped get me through." I would not file a protest. I would not go to the ACLU. I would not be mad. I would not write letters. I would not want to get that kid stricken. Fine. He, the kid's given his perspective. And he's not forcing that on me. He's saying that helped him. So I just, I just wish that there would be a little bit of a lightening up of all this. I mean, Christmas songs? Parents getting mad because their kids are singing Christmas songs? Hello, if you would give your kid a Christmas gift, then you're a hypocrite. Okay? <laughs> you're celebrating the day. So I just, I just think that people need to lighten up about some of that stuff. Um, because if we're going to be in this pluralistic society where we're all supposed to understand each other and get along, uh, Christianity gets a seat at that table too. Well, and I'm glad that you put it that way because then it is all of the fanatics, and I agree with you 100%. You know, I mean, yeah. if, a, if, a, if, a, if a young man, young woman uh, wants to profess in their speech, God love them for doing that. God Absolutely. Whatever God that is, you know, whatever. And by the way, what I would tell parents is everybody who loves you wants to see you succeed. And if that child was brought up Christian, whatever the religion, they'll know that God's in them. Okay. So I, I agree with you. I think it's also the other side that, that sort of peppers a little bit when you have you know, keep Christ in Christmas. Well, you know, okay, we you know we get that too. But I think it, it kind of peppers the the emotional side of it. If we could just like well, I, I, just, I think I think the reason that you find that stuff, I think the reason that you find people who who say it's okay to say Merry Christmas to people at, in a store, they're wearing a button to say it's okay to say Merry Christmas. Um, that's the reason they're shopping. You, you follow what I'm saying? I mean, it's the elephant in the room. <laughs> All right, you're at Black Friday because Christmas is coming. You're not there because any other holiday is coming. You're not there for any other reason. You're there because there's this day in December that we set aside and we say, this is the day we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. If you don't believe, you won't participate anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but look, look, I ain't been yeah, an atheist yet yeah. tonight. Yeah. 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 You want yeah. 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 those presents? Yeah. 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 Let me rephrase that question a little bit. Don't run off. Oh, come around. What can we learn from the Bible about how best to educate our children? I'd like to know what you think That's what the question was about. What is the biblical worldview in relation to education? And um, all the answers I heard were assuming that 
the government schools, which are the status quo, are indeed uh, compatible with the biblical worldview, and I would fix that from the beginning. The property tax is an unbiblical system of taxation. Government, what is the role of government? Again, it is an agency of force. It's an agency that is there to punish crime, to enforce contracts. It is not there to point a gun at you and say you will give up money to pay for someone else's education or to fund this education and to create an institution and run that institution and to have a school board that the state says what your children will learn, when they have to go, how long they have to go, all those things. The biblical mandate for education is to the family first and foremost and then to the church. And one of the reasons we have this huge communication problem with getting the Bible across to these children and to these unemployables is the fact that the church is not involved and the families are not involved. And that is the basic biblical mandate. And to assume the public school, which I call the government school more properly, mm -hmm. as the status quo is to make the mistake to begin with. That is not a biblical worldview. And I, I, I don't disagree with that philosophically. <clears throat> I just, I've never known the government to back out of a money-generating entity. The government makes nothing. They sell nothing. They're, they're not a commodities. That's not what they do. They, they, they collect money through taxation. That's it. That's their sole means of income. It's your money and my money. Okay? So I get that. And But they've never, that I know of, ever said, we're just not going to take any more money. Oh, we're just done. I'm not assuming that's going to happen. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> so, for me, that's why I'm, I'm being more of a pragmatist by saying the next step well, is if you're going to take my money, but at least give me some control over where it gets spent with regard to this issue of education. I get that I can't say to the government, um, maybe if I'm a, a, uh, a person who doesn't like the military, I can't say you can't use my taxes for the military. No, it goes in a big pot, it's going to be spent on the military. Okay? They can spend all mine there. Well, you can bit. say that. They mm -hmm. probably won't listen to you, but you right. have every right to say that. But in, in the case of the, in particular, of, the, of property taxes, which I don't see going away, they're specifically for that purpose. If that's what you're going to do with it, and I have a child that can benefit from it, give me the right to use some of those resources to educate my child. Mm -hmm. That's why you're taking them from me. And you're, so you're taking something from me that I don't, now I get no benefit for. And I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. And you hit one emotional strain on me just then, and I want to make sure that people understand this from my perspective and from those cut from the same cloth that I was. Be careful when you talk about supporting the military today. You're not supporting the soldiers. You're supporting the military-industrial complex. You're supporting Grumman. Uh, you're supporting Smith and Wesson. You're supporting the people who produce the weaponry. And you can take a look at some of the most recent decisions on the part of our Congress to not extend the benefits to survivors, to not extend the benefits to military for medical and for uh, mental health issues. That's supporting the soldier. We have to be very careful. When you vote, take a look at the voting record of your, of your representative Absolutely. to ensure that they are not voting for a new ship because we just don't have enough, because that's voting for some local... Well, well and that's and that's you, you and I actually agree a little yeah. bit. <laughs> We've been successful today. <laughs> well, that, that's a good corrective because I think a lot of people, including myself, when I use the shorthand for I support the military, I mean the soldiers. Yes. I mean the soldiers. If I want to support Smith and Wesson, I do it privately. Right. 
which I've not done as of yet. But, but <laughs> I mean, from the toilet, just some others I yeah, have. But people understand that, 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 that big pot of money. Yeah, that's actually right. Where that's, that's going. right. That's and right. that's going based on what your representatives do or don't support on the actual you know, and the ground. I'd go a step, so. now, I saw off topic, but just to get the, the dig in there, I'm going to do it. I'd go a step further and say, we ought not be supporting the military industrial complex of other nations mm-hmm. with our money. Mm-hmm. That, that would be another uh, little pet peeve. So while we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the question was, what can we learn from the Bible about how best to educate our children? That was the question. Anybody else have any other thoughts on that? As a woman on this panel <laughs> and, and listening and questioning, what can we learn? Correct? What can we learn from the Bible? About from the Bible. How best to educate our children. The thing that comes back to me um, in, the, in the community is that what well, my grandmother just, just always keep repeating, always keep saying, train up a child in the way they should go, and then they or they would not depart. Um, so if in my home there is no training in the scripture, in the word, as a parent right there, then I'm not going to be too concerned about Christianity mm-hmm. or Christ in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, if, on the other hand, my grandmother and mother raised me on the word, then I am going to look at it as, a different view when I see what's going on in the school, school as a student. If I want to silently pray before I take a math test, then that's going to be me as a student. That's that's what I learned. That's what I learned in community. And why is it always a math test? <laughs> 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 yeah, that's what they point out. You know, just you know, just real quickly from a, um, a eight year old eight year old perspective, just to share when it comes to education and belief, real quickly. And I'll, I'll share this story real quickly in 30 seconds. I heard it on the phone. So the eight there was an eight-year-old boy who was caught up in a house fire, um, and his mother left him home because grandma was on the way to pick him up. Mom was away. Uh, sometime during that, he was downstairs in the basement playing, and someone left a, a tablecloth or something, a cloth on the stove for the house. The kitchen caught fire. Well, the little boy tried to come back up from the basement, and he opened the door, and there was smoke everywhere, so he couldn't get out. He was downstairs in the basement, and he looked, couldn't find any way out. Uh, the fire department came, they called his mom, so she's frankly standing out in the yard crying in the fire department saying, no ma'am, no ma'am, you can't go there, you can't go in the house. Well, uh, the, all of a sudden the roof collapsed. And the little boy at the same time, he was just standing around in the basement just looking around, couldn't find any way out of the house. He saw this opening, you know, anybody has a basement, there's a little window open on the ground a lot of times. So he looked up at this window and uh, he said he saw a table and a big old book on that table. And he said, that's grandma's book. And every time she hold that book, she always said, if I just stand on the word, I can make it. So he pushed that book towards the end of the on that table. And then he climbed on top of that book, and that gave him enough leverage to get out of the window. So as the roof collapsed, he, he's coming around on the side street, he runs up the side street, and the fire department, fire chief said, how did you get out of that house? And he went and said, mommy, mommy, she's hugging. He said, again, son, how did you get out of the house? And the little boy said, well, Grandma always told me that if I stand on the word, I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where, if we teach um, our beliefs, on one hand, we're showing positive. Uh, on another hand, well, what we feel is positive, on the other hand, is just a, a matter of upbringing and what, how we can keep our youth connected in what they can do and how they can make it in life. That's what I learned. I think, um, and I'm going to probably piggyback on Tracy, but the, uh, she gave me a good uh, closing point for my message tomorrow. <laughs> but the um, the question was, how do we teach our children 
uh, concerning worldview or concern, concerning education, biblical. What can we learn from the Bible about how to I would I would want to probably um, throw out the uh, question to the panelists because oftentimes uh, we're talking about children. What about the adults, the parents that don't know? How can <coughs> parents teach what a parent does not know themselves? Mm -hmm. That that is a key point. I have to assume that anyone who comes to this church or any other church is taught the scripture. So if you have access to the child here, that should be a done deal. It's not that the, the education is being done. It's the support <coughs> of that education once they leave this building. And that, back to my unemployment, that's the issue. The issue is there's no support in the home. One of the, one of the researchers that, that proved this, children who are in Head Start, When they when they get to kindergarten, when they get to first grade, they are above the average first grader, right at or above. By the time they hit third grade, they are below. And what you can attribute that to is that there's no one at home reinforcing the way that they were reinforcing the education in the head start. There's no one at home that's making them read, whether it's the scriptures or whether it's Dr. Zeus, there's no one encouraging. There's, and in some cases, unfortunately, we have a tendency as a community sometimes to look down on these people and think that they're out partying when in fact they may be out working because they have to be. Mm -hmm. And you may have, may have children at home because there is no other place for them to be. And, and that, I think, should be a, the goal of the community to figure that out. Well, I think it's a huge role for the church. I mean, you're, you're talking about what happens when they leave this church. Well, one one of the problems is we have churches that sit empty for six days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, that, obviously, there are exceptions to that, Wednesday night services and whatnot. Why not transform the church into that very support network? Um, especially consider, well, I'm not going to go there, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, where are the volunteers in the church? You know, Where are the teachers? All that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. There's a huge support network we can draw from there. And especially with the vastness of the homeschooling movement these days, if the churches would open themselves up to that, to have some kind of regular program, that would go a long way to meet the very needs you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And since the biblical mandate <coughs> is to the family and then to the church, there's two of us. Right. The second time we're in agreement. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I think I just wanted to. Oh, Pastor, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to say this. And, um, I have a ninth grade high school education. Okay. Dropped out of school. Now, I went to high school for three years, but I wasn't there enough to complete three grades. Okay, so I have a ninth grade high school education. Um, I didn't graduate. I didn't go to prep school. I went to college. And, you know, I, I challenged myself. God allowed me to, to flourish. So I kept going, kept going, kept going. So I have the ability to talk to many people on many different levels. Okay. Um, it's the Bible. You, you know, religion in general. Reading that text, like you said, from a literature standpoint, obviously makes your mind gyrate and you start wanting to learn more things and you start to, you, you pick up your dictionary because there's words in there you don't commonly know so you start to, you, you get in your dictionary and you learn more about history so religion does that from a from a various aspects of any religion that you want to name, it forces you to self-educate, okay but the Christianity aspect of it it teaches morals, more so than any other religion that I've studied okay, the morals are very personal, it teaches you about self-responsibility Teach you about respect. Uh, it, it teaches you about a, a, a very, a, a vast majority of things that allow you to 
to be able to maneuver through life way much easier than, you know, some other things that are out there to study. So when you come from a biblical standpoint, from Christianity, I say that's it, you know. Now, someone believing in another faith might tell you it's, it's something different, but like I said early on when we both got here, there are views and there are beliefs. My belief is that this Bible has flourished me, has allowed me to be able to communicate and do the things that I do, hold a job, take care of a family, pay my taxes, and be responsible in life. When, um, when I think about the question also, also, the thought also comes to mind in terms of America, in terms of the dumbing down of Christianity. And by that I mean that we have a lot of people that are going to church. We have more church attendance. But in terms of those that are actually standing on biblical principles or knowing the word, um, the Bible says study to show, to show you self-approved. And you find that there are people that, uh, we go to church, but you can't force feed people. And I'm talking from a pastoral perspective. Um, either you're going to want to uh, learn these biblical principles and apply them to your lives and to your children and family lives, or you're just going to just be good church attendees. And I think in terms of America, and that's why we can see that in society, in terms of the dumbing down of society with the reality shows and other things that are going on, because it's a dumbing down. That's such a great point because it, it has never, it's, it's never been confusing to me to see why the rest of the world looks at us as infidels. Yeah. All you have to do is watch what we watch on television. <laughs> and, and, and the reality is, those shows will continue to be because we continue to watch them. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and that is that breaks the moral fiber. That absolutely breaks, no matter what the religious belief is, that breaks the moral fiber. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the problems that we have within the government. Let's let's say uh, your welfare type programs, your social security type programs. Um, and what does the Bible, how does it approach those? Does it, does it say, is it a biblical view or is it an unbiblical view? And if, if uh, you know, how does the scripture call for take care of the poor and the widows? And how should we be approaching this? Is it the government's job to be doing it? Is it church's well, job? The government's picked up the job because the churches have not done it. Yeah. I mean, as far as care for the, for the widows, orphans, poor in general, uh, churches are notoriously bad for. And, and as a result, you've got a government entity that, that steps in to do it. Um, whether they should or not is a different story. But nature abhors the vacuum. Somebody's got to do it. And, and I know that this is going to be filmed, so I'll have to make sure I get this right because my wife will be watching it. She's a, she's a, career, she's a career social worker. Oh. Okay, she runs, she's now the, the dean of the school social work at Barton. And she does a course in, um, in the history of social work. And you realize that the, that the entire social system, social uh, services system, was derived out of organizations like the St. Paul Society. Mm -hmm. This is at a time during the Industrial Revolution when people, uh, the, the, the breadwinner was typically, was pretty much always the man. Mm -hmm. And the issue was that if the man was hurt at work because there was no OSHA, there were no safety things, and he, that, that they, the church, in this case St. Paul's, would take over the responsibility to care for the family until that person, uh, that male, was back to work. Mm -hmm. In the event that that male was dead, it was until that woman found another husband, which is one of the reasons why today, in our social work, social services system, there's a rule that says you cannot have a married couple together and get some of the benefits 
it goes all the way back to that history. So I think it, it started out, right, and then it's, and then and I think they were doing a good job, but it yeah. became massive, very similar to what we have today. I mean, the food stamp requirements are just horrendous because of the economy, and it's the working poor. Listen to the difference: the working poor, not the entitled poor, that have have brought that number of, of recipients so high. Well, what I like about what you were saying was that you saying there was a time when this was taken care of entirely that the government was not involved in. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, I, I believe And it. I think yeah. that's the biblical view. The mandate for welfare and what I would call social insurance in general is to the church and to, to uh, about the same extent to the family. Um, a, a lot of teaching goes into that. We spent a whole time throughout the Old and New Testaments, I would simply point the church to 1 Timothy 5, in which Paul tells Timothy to have a welfare program for the elderly and the widow specifically. Mm -hmm. So now what you said is that the church has been bad at that and the, the, the government picked up the slack. And that's that's true to a large extent. But my shorthand. Yeah, it is shorthand. Um, um, but there was also there were also pushes, and, and actually I've written about this in my latest book, Restoring America. I didn't mean to plug my book. I'll give you. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see how he'll, he'll edit it out. <laughs> the history of welfare in this nation is actually tied in very closely to the history of warfare in this nation. Mm -hmm. And the first welfare benefits were paid to Union Civil War veterans uh, who had been wounded in battle. And then as time went on, you had these guys coming up with a sore toe and said they had been wounded in battle, and in reality, they dropped a two-by-four on it and and started claiming benefits. I was wounded in battle. And so then they just extended it to all Union soldiers, and then eventually to their progeny, to their families. Well, why should the wife suffer? And then it was to, to their extended families. You know, well, I have a niece who's down and out because of my benefits. And this snowballed, and then of course when you get to the late 19th century, you have the labor unions coming involved. And they say, why Why is it just military guys who are getting relief? We're, we're out of work, we're having all these hardships, we're not paid much, uh, why shouldn't we get welfare benefits? And so this snowballed through history, and of course when you have the Great Depression, and people are living in rural areas with virtually nothing, mm -hmm. living off the land with potatoes, uh, you had a push from the government, and this was not, this is the part I want to say, that was not because the church had dropped the ball. It was because there was a, an ideology behind our government that says socialism came in, okay? And, and it was virtually non-Christian from the beginning. And it was to replace Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just the church failed, but you also had in large sectors of the government and the population, uh, you had... Uh, a hostile ideology that was hostile in the church. And so they, they came in with the New Deal. Uh, it was essentially, there's a lot more to it than that. But I'm afraid. Well, I think, so you I had all these things working together. Part of my point was um, <clears throat> after seminary for uh, master's work and seminary for doctoral work, uh, I didn't take a single class on how to establish a ministry to the mm -hmm. poor or to widows and orphans and so forth. And I, I think the view was that that's not our role. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's so when, I, so when I say drop the ball, I don't necessarily mean from a historical perspective <clears throat> as much as I mean today. Okay. We don't do it. Yeah. 
when we when somebody's going to plant a new church, the thing they worry about is location and a really cool worship service. They're not interested in saying, let's let's go find the poorest part of Wilson and plant a church. And let's first thing we do is open a soup kitchen or a job retraining or something like that. Nobody's going to do that. We want to go out on the edge of town in a really cool facility with lots of flashy lights and a cool rock band, and we're going to start a church out there. You know, there's, there's a great line from the song that goes directly to that Bruce Coburn song where he talks about when, when uh, Christ was born, he was not born in a palace. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And he, and he dealt with shepherd street people, hitters yeah. and bums. That's right. And that's what we've missed. That's right. That's right. And I think that in some, in some areas of the government today, which the government's trying to get back to that point. The government is trying to push the idea that we have a social obligation. We're going to talk about about social. Um, uh, what was the term? Uh, social justice. Social justice. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is what some of the leaders in this country today are trying to do with all of us, in city, county, state, and and federal government, to get back to that point. I think I think from the laws aspect is is our Part of the problem is government intervention too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do believe that the government is trying their best to get back to the point where it's practical to take care of people. Obviously, we need to do something. We have a lot of people hurting, a lot of people homeless, a lot of people hungry, and, and that just shouldn't be in America. And I think if you're a Christian, my morals again, <laughs> if you're a Christian, you do believe that we should take care of people, we should help people, but we also believe that as a human being, we shouldn't be taken advantage of. And that people should earn their keep and people should work hard and bust their butt and not have a problem with doing that and not have a choice in the matter. Well, I don't want to take anyone's choice away, but you shouldn't be have a choice in the matter to say, I would rather you take care of me than work this type of job. Mm-hmm. If that job is readily available for you, you know, you should be able to take that job until you can do better. So there's a lot of things going on in that message. There's a lot of directives, there's a lot of laws, there's a it's a total new belief, I think, today that a lot of people are challenged with, and just the idea of being taken care of is a very big conversation. Yeah, I, and, and again, I, I, I agree with you, uh, but I look at those people that, as, as folks who are using the system. Oh, yeah. That, okay. yeah and, and you have to look at the demographics there. You just have to look at populations. I mean, again, for a military analogy, anytime that we would have, and I don't know if you know this or not, anytime we would have a military uh, uh, operation, you would expect a percentage of fatalities. That's in peacetime because of the number of people. Uh, you know, every time you hear of, uh, you know, in Iraq or Iran, when you read the paper, the service person died of non-combat. I mean, that's a person who passed away from a heart attack. It's a person who was hit by a truck. That was the, so the same thing happens. You have this huge group of people. The nuns on a bus showed us this. That, that the, the Republicans at that time, and the, you know, the, the, the radical side of that party, was looking at people and saying, everyone is an entitled person. Everyone just doesn't want to work. Everyone. And they were bringing to light the fact that there are families where there are three and four jobs in that family, and they still can hardly make it. They're still on welfare. They're still getting some form of welfare. And one of the fallacies on welfare, which I think people need to come to grips with and accept it as a fact, you know, people say they're on welfare for life. That's impossible. 
You realize that? Not, in you, my, not where I'm from. I don't know where you're from. You, 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 <laughs> right, see, this is, this is exactly, but this is exactly the point. Now, you hear the, the difference. This is a factual, verifiable fact. It is a law. You cannot receive welfare, welfare, I'm talking subsistence, not food stamps through each different kind. Welfare where you're getting money for nothing. Okay, so unfortunately started calling it Obama bucks. Welfare for more than two years consecutively or for five years total. That's a, that's a law. It's a perception that people have. You know, here's another perception. Yeah, you're right. I'd love to use this perception for, for Wilson because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of real efforts being put into downtown Wilson right now and trying to renovate and rejuvenate and get Wilson downtown. And one of the biggest complaints is what? If I go downtown Wilson, I'm going to get murdered, raped, or mugged. Where is Where in the city of Wilson are the, are the, the, the crimes greatest? Not downtown. Not downtown. Not downtown. Not downtown. As a matter of fact, Walmart parking lot, Target parking lot. And then, but you have to look at it in this respect. I tell people when I hear that argument, I say, you know, the good news is we have low crime in downtown. The bad news is we have low crime in downtown. It means there's no money down there. But the perceptions is what kills us in a normal well, I, I, would, I would guess that for what? Pudge was saying. I, I, I have a tough time calling you Pudge. I don't know what my nickname is. I mean, I'm slim. I get that. I don't know what I am. I think. I think it's we sort of just umbrella everything, whether it's whether it's food stamps or whether it's with actual cash or any other kind of government benefit. We just put this big umbrella uh, as an entitlement. And, and that's what's, what, if I were to say that these folks, you know, it's, it's a career, or they live on welfare, they're on welfare their whole life, I would be referring to a whole umbrella term, sure. not just actual cash money right. being handed out. Right. And, and that was one of the things that we heard during the campaign, which was offensive to me personally, because I would be one of the entitled. Because according to the the Republican Party, under what could have been the leadership of Mr. Romney, uh, I I was a person who took from the government. I didn't earn my military retirement. I didn't earn my my medical coverage. And that when I hit 65, having worked 50 years of my life, I didn't earn yeah. Social Security. Well, I, I would say, let me keep in mind, too, that it was a, there were a good number of Republicans who debunked that call. Yeah, I was going to say, let, let, let me be fair. Especially right now, they're debunking it really well. Well, they did at the time. They said a lot of things, but that was not a smart thing to say. No. And it reflected his view and his understanding. And I took offense to the fact that you're counting in there anybody that receives a government check. Okay, which my tax refund was a government check. Right. Of course, I paid in some too. But that that was that was just a stupid statement that does yeah. not reflect conservative ideology. Right. And, and I wasn't trying to get into the statements or, the, or the, to to argue the point of statements. My my concern is always the perception a person has when they make a statement. When they make a statement that says, for example, all Christians or all. Uh, there's a moral base in Christianity, but that's not found in other religions. That 
that's a pretty blanket statement. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there's, you know, some, some you know, the Muslims or, or, or Jews or, or uh, Buddhists that would argue that point. Well, I, I made that statement, argument, but but I, the way that I made the statement, I said, I, I what I found that's was right. moral, and, and I have studied different religions. I have friends that are, are in, in the nation of Islam, and it's 75% and 3% and you name it. I've talked to people all over the place. But my point in this is, and, and I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. sorry. Sorry about that. So I'll let you go ahead. No, I was just going to say it wasn't that I was that, that I was criticizing you or or any of the things. What I'm saying, the, the concern I have is that we always have this perception in our mind, what we believe to be the truth, and sometimes when you're shown a fact, you say I didn't believe it. Well, here's the thing, and that scares me. Here's, here's oh, I I know that's true because <laughs> the stuff I put on Facebook is fact, and the people who are arguing with me, I want to say. It's not debatable. You just let it go by. Well, a lot of those folks in Washington haven't lived in what they perceive. I actually lived in the areas where they have a what they have a perception of, and perception is reality in a large part. When you're living in those communities and you realize what is happening, despite what the facts and the statistics say, you see what's happening in in a, from a real life aspect. Mm -hmm. You see people that aren't motivated and that know that they can get housing for the remainder of their life if they remain in a certain circumstance. But you also see many things going around on in the community from a political aspect where politicians come along, they shake hands and they kiss baby put babies, but they don't have a plan for that community to get out of that situation. And that's what I have a problem with. That's why I know I see lifetime dependency on the federal government from whatever welfare standpoint you want to call it. What the government has a good job, what they do a good job of is defining one part of it the way they want to define it. They can say people that receive cash distributions are on welfare, but people who receive housing for a lifetime are not. When we both know, everyone in this room knows that that's not true. That's true. Some people definitely do need to be taken care of, I, I get it, for the remainder of their lives because they can't take care of themselves. I'm not talking about able-bodied, okay? Mm -hmm. I get that. I understand that clearly. But the problem that we have is the same thing that you're facing. People aren't motivated to do, and there's not many folks out there teaching. There's a lot of talking going on, but there's not a lot of teaching going on. So people don't want to be involved with the talking. They want to get along with the teaching, but there's nobody motivating that. And there's really nobody teaching that. Do you think maybe that there's even a, an exploitation of that? It absolutely is. That absolutely is. We see it all the time. You know, people come around and perpetuate their ideas, and, 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 and they, they push their ideas on people when it's not really true. I know plenty of poor people that, listen, here's what I've said, and I've always said this. I believe that, and, and I believe it in my heart and soul, if we took welfare or any kind of welfare, you, we're talking realistically here, okay? We're not talking from a government standpoint. We're talking about people who aren't motivated to do and don't have and don't want, okay? If we took those type of people and the entitlements that they're on and we, and we pushed it through, funneled it through education, Okay, and, and even trade and job skills, those folks, we would be much off. All of us would be much better off. But we don't do that. We use them as a statistic, and we talk about it for a campaign, and then it's over and done with. And then when the cycle comes back around, we talk about it again. There's the exploitation right there. And that, that is the exploitation. That's big business for government itself. Because if they allow, if they allow things to be the way it should be, if they allow people to, to be educated, to take better care of themselves and their families, then what is it that the government going to do? Where is the government going to get its 
talking points. Where's the government going to get all this funding? You know, and, and I mean, when I say government getting the funding, I mean like like the local government, because the funding comes to the local government to take care of these people that are on, that are getting these food stamps and, and are on welfare and in public housing and things like that. So if if it's not, if they're out of it, then the government is out of it. And if the government is out of it, then the government has absolutely nothing to do. And they're always looking for something to do. They they have to have something to do, and that's what they're doing. That's why they don't. They don't want you out of it. No. Mm -hmm. They want to keep people in these positions or in these situations because it makes it better for them. More votes. Mm -hmm. Well, more people would well, vote if they were more educated, and they know they realize right. that. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you got another Yes. Um, well, first of all, most of all, you do deserve your benefits if you serve your military. That's just right there in And Pastor over here was talking about the church dropping the ball and I can see where he's coming in future tense where we are right now because a lot of times in our church we're so busy about keeping our monies and making our church grow and making our churches look beautiful and um, we have our churches right there in the communities that need our help but we're not helping them as much as we could as much as we should. Um, so, and even years ago, when I was uh, growing up, uh, churches used to visit each other. Nobody wants to leave their church service on the Sundays anymore because the tithes may go somewhere else. Churches had Sundays, so they had to keep it uh, now, right now, there. Now, wait a minute. You're messing so, with being Pastor Smith. <laughs> 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 we're not going to go there. No, we're not going to. This after this. You can drop your check off before you go. Exactly. You can, too. So, everybody, I'm going to get started. Even what was, uh, Pudgy was saying, I don't have a problem calling you Pudgy, but I know you're Pudgy. Um, <laughs> um, back to our community, and we do have a lot of people with diverse background, diverse ethnic that can't do anything for themselves. So yeah, the sources, the resources we have in there for our social work, but we do have some of some of our communities out there that because their ancestors and the poor that person grew up in a mindset of I can receive benefits or I can receive this is easy. Um, I have a young child, I have a baby, I'll just go and, and get the benefits that I need. But right there in their mind they have everything that it takes to be to continue school, to continue education, to uh, look for job assistance, to own businesses, but because their community or their environment which they grew up in, it's almost like Okay, I can make it here. I don't have to go outside of, of this realm. This is what I'm. This is the norm for me. This is the norm for my family. This is the way it's supposed to be. Until we come together as a community and church and say, okay, there's another outlet. Sure, you you have this once a month income, or sure you have this, but if you can apply yourself to this, then this is what you can do. Social services, social work doesn't have to be the only resource, or the government doesn't have to be the only resource. If we as a community can uh, come together and show them there are better resources. You know, we're, we're doing everything we can that we believe, but there are ways that we can do better. Can, can I make two quick points, huh? if you don't mind? Go ahead. Um, I wanted you. to say something. Well, well, one thing I wanted to say is that we, as citizens and as voters, we need to hold the government accountable as well, because a lot of people want to come out of their conditions and their situations, but they can't because the stronghold that they have with regulation. You look at people who are on welfare, they can't, they can't hold $3,000 in the bank, can't make $10 an hour, and that happens in a matter of 15 days. So if you get a job making $10 an hour, 
and you save $3,000, you immediately lose your benefit that got you to that point. Mm -hmm. So we got to hold the government accountable as well. And then I wanted to say to you guys, um, part of the church, when I was growing up, people helped the church to be able to help the people. Mm -hmm. Folks aren't helping the church as much anymore. People aren't serving in the church, so it makes it very hard for the church to help the people. Well, that's exactly leads into what I was going to say. Ultimately, the government shouldn't be involved in that at all. It's not not only the government shouldn't be the only alternative, it shouldn't be an alternative. When you mix the guns and the money together, you've got problems. Mm. Uh, The church should pick up the slack. And and like you said earlier, they've backed out of this. They don't preach it. I can, for the life of me, in my 38 years, however many years I've been listening to sermons, I have never heard a sermon on 1 Timothy 5. I've never heard a sermon on the Levitical gleaning laws. What does that mean? Uh, Things of that nature. There's never been a mandate for the church from the church just to fund these programs and that's what you were saying exactly is that, that when you say people need to help the church we need to encourage our pastors to preach these things we also need to encourage our deacons and whoever holds the purse in your church to budget these things because the vast majority of money in churches nowadays goes to pay the pastor's salary and for the building programs and I don't know about you guys, church individually, but that's been my experience. Um, you know, I can tell you uh, a story of a, of a very large Reformed church, conservative Reformed church from my town back in Georgia. They had uh, they had to build a <coughs> sanctuary. They went out and built a twelve million dollar sanctuary, put four million of it on a mortgage. And I think you've not only pledged your tithes to a building when you could have gone to two or three services, but now you've pledged the, your future tithes to a building. That's not responsible fiscal management. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not being a good steward of God's money. So we need budget for these things and sacrifice in the other areas. Mm-hmm. Let me ask one more question. This will be our last question. We'll wrap this up. Uh, there are some other questions. We'll go with this one. In light of what we just talked about and the social programs um, that are out there that, that are popular now that you know, varying opinions about whether or not they're being used properly or, or not properly, um, when it comes to, you've heard the term redistribution of wealth, and of course that, that's thrown around a lot here under our, uh, during the past election cycle. Um, I, I want your viewpoint on what does the scripture say, does it support or does it not support what you perceive to be what's described as the redistribution of wealth, which is, uh, in my understanding, will be taking from those who have more to give to those who have less. In, in general senses, um, what does scripture say about that, and is it, is it scriptural or not scriptural? Well, it's a very broadly stated question. Uh, what I would say, what I would object to, is the forced redistribution of wealth using the government. That I believe is unbiblical. But you will never escape the redistribution of wealth in society, and that comes back to the voluntary tied into the church, okay, and the church's management of that money to take care of the poor, to take care of the elders, which is its job. So you will never escape the redistribution of wealth. What we've got to learn to do is to do it through private means, through church means, and to begin to preach about this, to facilitate uh, the doing of it, to teach Christians about it, and, and to have a vision for this so that we don't have to live under a tyrannical system of forced redistribution of wealth where the government's involved in this, which means politics is involved in it, which means politicians are involved in it, which means you're essentially buying votes from one class of people by promising certain benefits 
and uh, you know you're going to stick to the rich, and you got this class called the rich, or the the really rich, or whatever. That for some reason it's okay to tax those, uh, when the only biblical model. Well, I won't go into progressive taxation, but uh, what I object to is the forced redistribution. But you can't escape the redistribution. But it goes back to the same thing he was saying about the church mm -hmm. not taking care of, of the poor and the widows mm -hmm. and the government stepping in. If, <coughs> if it's not happening, then the government needs to step in and make sure that not so much as redistributing it, but managing the way that it's... I, 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 don't, I don't know if it's, the, if it's the taxing of the more richer people than, 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 than the poor people that's going to help I don't think that that's going to that, that's, that's going to do it but there is some things that the government do need to do to redistribute that wealth because the middle class and I guess everybody in this room is middle class we get out we work we strive to make a better life for ourselves and our children but the harder we work the deeper we go so therefore, somewhere down the line, the government needs to draw the line and say, well, look, the, the gap between those and those that are not there is getting too big too fast. So we need to do something to slow this gap down so that we as working people can make sure that our families behind us, the generation behind us, will have something to do. Because that's what, that's what as a parent, that's what we look for. We want our children to have a better life than what we had. And we expect our children to want their children to have a better life. But if it's a if it's a gap there and the government is allowing it to stay there and waiting on a private organization or waiting on the churches to close this gap, it's not happening. It hasn't happened and I don't see it happening. So somewhere down the line the government they don't need to step in and do the whole entire thing, but somewhere down the line, the government has obligations to its people well, to I, make sure that everybody has the quality of life that they deserve. I don't know if the government's done a good job of slowing down the gap, but they've done a good job of slowing down the economy. <laughs> so, so maybe that's a start. I don't know if the government caused the economy to be as it is, or if we as people caused the economy to be as it is. Well, when, any, anytime you take more money out of the hand, anytime you take more money out of my pocket, mm -hmm. I got less money to go spend. Exactly. Okay? So, at, I mean, at its base, we can talk about all the philosophies and theories that we want to, but at the end of the day, if you got $100 in your pocket, Tom, mm -hmm. and somebody comes and takes 50 of it away from you, you've only got 50 left to spend. But if they only take 20, you got 80 to spend now. So, the, the idea of the force redistribution, at some point, you've got to ask your question. When, we, when I teach and preach on tithing in our church, the thing I, I talk about is how much of God's money are you going to keep? Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. He owns it all. Right. So how much of his money are you going to keep? Our government has the same philosophy. <laughs> and the question becomes, how much, of, how much of your money are you comfortable with the government taking? 20%? 25%? $4 dollars you make? Are you comfortable? And, and I put that personally because anytime we can anonymize a group, whether it's the poor, when we do a blanket, make a blanket statement about the poor, or it's the super rich, when we can just make this anonymous statement that that's too much money, 
LeBron James ought not make that much money. That's too much money. He didn't pass something to me. Why? I can't play basketball. Not like him. I don't have any value to the Miami Heat or in the culture and society. So for me, the question is not how much of their money should we take and do something with. My question is how much of your money are you comfortable with the government taking? And then let's just apply that to everybody. But we're not talking about how much of my, how much the government is taking. We're talking about how the government is going to redistribute what is needed. Oh, I know, I'm getting on the front end of it. Right. I'm getting, before they redistrib- redistrib- redistribute it, I want to know how much we're going to give them to redistribute. I want, I'm getting on the front end of the question. It's a question I asked last night. How in the world did Old Testament Israel get by for all those years with no civil taxation? Yeah. Well, in the Old Testament, I'm sorry. That's right. Old Testament law, well, there was no civil taxes. Well, we're back into, and, and this is, again, where I get kind of concerned. We're back into the emotional side. Nobody's taking money from anybody here. You're either paying taxes or not. Redistribution of wealth, listen to this, redistribution of wealth is an emotional term for politicians use. It's so that you can hear that, that somebody is going to take 50 bucks out of your wallet. They're not going to do that. It is whether or not the fair amount of taxes and we take you all the way back to the, under Republicans, back to Eisenhower. 90% was the tax rate. 90% of what you made went to the government. Yeah, not too many Republicans left. Times were good. <laughs> times were good, and 90% was across the board. And times were good. Okay? Today, if you want to talk about how much are people willing to pay, they're, they're, we're not, I don't think that the government's saying, especially the present administration, which I think, again, there's a lot of, it, you want to talk about you know, Obama being a socialist? Take a look at the stock market and take a look at corporate profits as well. That's not socialism. That, that is, that's free market. You have got to praise that guy for not being a socialist if you're going to do anything. I'm saying... Actually, you don't want to hear that now. <laughs> no, you don't want to hear that. Not free market. Let, let me finish. He thinks but people are too big. Just let me finish. He thinks banks are too big to fail, but not me. Just let me finish. The point I'm making is that you that you put an emotional term on someone, and then when the facts show that that's not the case, you switch that to something different, and you say, well, now what they're doing is going to take your money. That's a socialist thing. Well. <clears throat> the top one percent, the top one percent, the super super, uh, which by the way, LeBron James is not even close. I'm aware of that. Not even. Here, here's here's a quick statistic for those of you who want to know about the super. Not, and these are not. This is not even the super rich. Uh, in a, in a town in Florida that I'm very familiar with, there are 40 mansions on the beach. 40. Each one of those mansions is well over $25 million each. That's a home. These are private homes. Each one of the people that reside in those homes, all 40 of them, make the average of $50,000 a day. A day. And not one of them has a job. What do they do? Now, the question, <laughs> just a second. The question becomes that they 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 own businesses. They've had they've had you know. Well, whatever, had, but, but I don't have a problem with that. The, so the question becomes how much, and and you know this because of, of the recent campaign. How much are they taxed for that? 
And when you start talking about 15% or 13% or 9% versus somebody who's a secretary in a law firm making, paying 23, 32, 41%, that's wrong. That just well, I agree with that. morally, ethically <laughs> wrong. So the question becomes not one of going to take money out of my wallet, take money out of his wallet, and he's going to $20 less or anything like that. It really becomes one of what are you going to do with the tax codes? Is it reasonable that Shell Oil can live on the $37 billion profit they pulled this year without a government subsidy? I would have to say as a logical thinking human, yes. That the government would not need to give them any money because they have enough. But we don't do that. How does the government give them money? I'm sorry? talking about their tax exemption. You're talking, you're talking about the tax loops. You're talking about you're talking about the uh, the, the entitlements that they okay. receive. It's like farmers who get money for not farming. Well, well you can't exclude those folks though because they've done well, and, and that's what no, we no, do. No, no. Like you, you right. I, I, I'm I'm in the old business. I get it. <laughs> but here's here's the thing, and, and not show all. I, I don't mean that in that aspect. <laughs> do you do you realize what how much they're taxed though? Already? Do you realize what their profits are? See, it's not their fault that they have a commodity that we all have to use. It's not their fault. Right. What happens is these folks make less than 15% profit on a dollar. So that means you got 85% gone. Now, where does that go? So you're talking about what if you made 15% of every dollar that you made? Would that be fair to you? Would that be fair to anybody? So I, I think what we deal with is that. I'll make it simple. I'm not going to go into Canadian finance or anything like that. I'm just going to make it very simple. <laughs> if you have a job and someone comes up to you, just like Pastor just said here a few minutes ago, and they want to take half of your money, you're not going to agree with that. What happens in our society is a lot of people set out to start a business, and we're all for it. You know, we go for it. Do it. You know, do good at it. But the minute that person gets successful past the level that we think we should see them at, we have an issue with it. And it just shouldn't be that way in, in, in layman's terms. I'm, I'm not you know, going political with it, just in layman's terms. And we are in violent agreement. What I'm saying is, instead of saying take $50 from me and $20 from him, I'm saying take $50 from everybody. Let's say, I'm, I'm all for that. Right. And, and here's the other point that I'll make, regardless of, regardless of what it is, okay, regardless of what a company that's making a profit, you understand that that is after taxes, that is after all expenses, all after all overhead, after all the salaries that are given, after, 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 you're sitting on $37 billion. A part of the reason that you have that $37 billion is because you were given entitlements through government systems. But you can't, the thing is, there is a program called entitlements or taxation, or there's a tax code. The code so you can't, you can't exclude these people from the tax code and tax them too. No, you got you can't have it both ways. We're if not, they're part of the tax code, naturally they're going to get some of those deductions. You, and you it, and just, I, it just works that way. You and I are in violent agreement on this. Yeah, it is, has everything to do with fairness. If it's a fair system across the board, I have no problem. I have to violently disagree <laughs> with the concept that taxation is not taking your money. Taxation is, by definition, the government taking your money. Absolutely. It's the only way it can make money. And the hidden way in which it does that, we haven't even talked about, and I think it underlies a lot of what's going on on Wall Street. It's not Obama's credit. It's the credit of Ben Bernanke and the Federal Reserve System, which is an unbiblical system of money. And then you've got to ask when this money is created, 
there's a given to first. Who profits from it first? And that money enters society, if, if it does in fact enter the markets, it drives down the, the purchasing power of the money you have in your wallet. And whoever gets that money on the front end spend it in large quantities, whether it be a bank or a big corporation or uh, cash sitting on the sideline in hedge funds. I don't think the hedge funds actually get money from the Federal Reserve, but uh, that money enters the markets and it drives the prices of, of things up, whether it be prices of things corporations produce or the prices you see reflected on Wall Street. It's a corrupt system to begin with because it's an unbiblical system of money to begin with. When the Bible talks about thou shalt not steal, that applies across the board. It applies to governments, which is why there was no civil taxation in Old Testament law. And it also applies to individuals, and it applies to the banks as well. You don't get to ramp up the money supply and cheat people out of their savings in that regard. So there are a whole lot of factors involved here than just certainly more than just Democrat versus Republican, and historically they've both been terrible abusers of all these things. Uh, you've got to begin, this is why this all has to start with that book. If you don't have a biblical doctrine of taxation, you don't have a biblical doctrine of money, you don't have a biblical doctrine of what is government for, you're going to have all these problems that we're sitting here arguing over. Because you don't have God's definitions of what those things are to begin with. And when we start trying to use man's definitions and man's arguments and man's rhetoric, we run into all kinds of corruptions and, and everything else in society. Sure. One of the comments you made, Tom, which I don't think you and I are near as much disagreement as what we may have thought. Because for me, a fair taxation is a flat tax. It applies to investments and anything. Whatever, whatever you profit in a year, you're going to be taxed by. And whatever percentage that is, that's fine. My issue is, I've not heard a lot of that in political discourse. Mm -hmm. What I've heard is either on the one side saying, cut taxes for everybody, cut taxes for wealthy, cut that, and you still keep this system where everybody's a little different level. Mm -hmm. Or on the other side, we're going to stick it to the rich, okay? We're going to, those people, those 40 mansions, they, they need to pay more, and the rest of you guys are going to cut your taxes. What I'm saying is, if, if uh, a person is making money off of investment income, and obviously they're profiting each year because they're able to afford to stay in those mansions and they're eating, they got power on in there. It ought to be taxed. I got no, I got no, I got no problem with that. But it ought not be taxed lower than what I've got to pay, or higher than what I've got to pay. And what we've created in our culture, in our society, is this, this um, class warfare that says the rich are the bad guys. Well, I don't know any of the super rich. They wouldn't hang out with me if I did. Okay. But. I don't envy. I don't envy the people on, in that mansion. I know you don't. You don't envy them that their work, their thing. If you made the statement, and that's what I piggybacked on, it ought to be fair. Okay. So I'm good with it. Take 15, 20 percent from everybody. But when you start getting personal and asking, how much should the government take from you? Because that's what taxation is. They're they're using our money. I'll show you my 1040. They kept some of my money, and I'm okay with it. It funds our soldiers. It funds roads. I'm good with it. But when I ask on a personal level, how much did they keep out of your pocket? That's just an attempt to help personalize it. Because it's easy to talk in these general terms of, well, that's taxes and that's something else. But if you're going to come pulling out of my pocket, we're going to have an issue. Right? So I'm, I'm with you in saying it ought to be even and it ought to apply to work wages as well as investment income. i got no beef with that. Most of them people, they invest that money tax-free anyway. Let's, let's stop right there.
Well, that's all for tonight. So, again, we thank you for listening to the KRP Radio Show. Be sure to add us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and any other place you might come across us. Also, don't forget you can listen to a replay on iTunes anytime, day or night, and we're always on the official website, which is krrpradioshow.com. I want to give a B.I.G. shout-out to all you listeners, as my dad would say. And remember, you're B.I.G. in my book. God is love and love is God. Have a great week. Bye. See you later. K.I.R.P. Radio! Real gon' recognize, real gon' recognize, real gon' recognize, real, real. Only gon' recognize, still, still. I reckon I will. Like we always do with this time.